Hi, I'm Caroline, a yoga and breathwork teacher with a special interest in menopause based in Edinburgh. And hi, I'm Dr. Claire, a GP and a British Menopause Society specialist based in London. Together we are the Menopause Sisters and we are here to guide and support you through your menopause journey. Good morning and welcome to the Menopause Sisters podcast with myself, Dr. Claire, and my sister, Caroline. We are delighted today to welcome Dr. Nigat Arif to our podcast, who I don't think needs any introductions whatsoever, but I am going to introduce you because we introduce all of our guests. So Dr. Nigat is a GP specialising in women's health and family planning with lots of experience within the NHS and in private practice. She's based in Buckinghamshire and is a shining light, I think, when it comes to women's health and explaining and debunking a lot of the myths around women's health. She's worked uh, with the UN. She is resident doctor at BBC Breakfast and ITV This Morning, and she hosts some of her own shows. You will know her from the numerous amazing work that she does and all those viral TikTok videos that you put out during COVID and continue to put out, which have gone completely wild. So welcome, Dr. Nigat. I could talk more about your bio and all the amazing work you do, but that would take up the entire podcast. So welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. It's so nice to actually see you because I feel like we're we're part, just so everybody knows, we're part of a WhatsApp group. (laughs) And Claire always drops these amazing gems of information that I'm like lapping up constantly. So it's a mutual appreciation, this podcast. Thank you. That's very kind. That is very kind. I'm I'm delighted to have you on and and to, to talk about your your new book, which I don't think is that new anymore, but still a new book in my eyes because it's an incredible almost compendium if you like of women's health from puberty up through to postmenopause and I really wanted to start by just sort of asking you a bit about what what sort of brought you to to write it and how that came about just so our listeners know the book is the knowledge I'm sure you all know your guide to female health from menstruation to the menopause which is just a a brilliant book so talk talk to us about it please Uh, the book has been out since August this year and um, I'm so happy and proud actually that Hachette Octopus backs my book because it is essentially I always say to people it's an ingredient book So just like you would find a recipe book for lots of different recipes out there, this is a recipe book for for our bodies. It takes you through the transitions that we go through as women and girls. It starts at puberty, goes through to our fertility years, and then through perimenopause, menopause, and beyond, and right down, right till, you know, when we are no longer here. And I think that the reason I wrote this was because number of things that I had accumulated as a doctor over my 10 years as a gypsy, so that's a GP with a specialist interest in women's health, as you and I both know, you end up picking up gems of information along the way. And you're like, well, I must write this down because I can then tell my colleagues about this. Uh, and numerous times you never get around to doing it. I also work with English, with a lot of women for whom English is not their first language. I also work with a lot of um, Black and Asian ethnic minority communities and so marginalised communities. I have a few trans patients, uh, patients of mine who are visually impaired, patients of mine who are from the deaf community so I thought oh my goodness there are all these barriers that they face 
we come across it in our clinical room under the privacy of our clinical room. I'd love it if I could put this into a book and then share the knowledge so that A, everybody, men, men, women, girls, all um, abilities of understanding. So this is not a a scientific medical book per se. It's a lay, it's very lay book, written in a lay form that anyone can pick up and start having conversations about their bodies really. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it is a really great coverall book in a way. And what I love about it is there's lots I love about it, but what I particularly love as someone who struggles just sitting down and reading a book is the colours, is the incorporation of different coloured skins and that diversity that is actually within the book. Because I think like you said before, and within the book there's 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 a sense that women's health is is very sort of beige, if you like. You know, there's not that diversity we see in in leaflets in in books. And so it's really it's really refreshing to see that colour in a way in a book. Was that sort of was that quite important to you when sort of putting it together? I mean, beyond leaflets, even medical school, if you remember back at medical school, Claire, I can't remember lots of books with women of colour in there at all, or even uh, trans health or LGBTQ plus communities being referenced in books at all. And I think that um, when you're not seen and heard, you do feel that there's that gap in the market, but also you feel that what the experiences that you have, the lived-in experience of, say, perimenopause, you're not part of the conversation. And I get that sense a lot from my community. I'm South Asian, I wear a hijab, um, I speak Punjabi, so English isn't my first language. And I came here when I was nine years old. And when I came to England, I became the first in my household to start learning English. And naturally, as a child of Im- immigrants, you end up then translating for your family and beyond it, the other aunties in your community, even though they're not your blood relative. So what I was translating to the doctor about heavy periods, miscarriages, um, fibroid, endometriosis, uh, premenstrual tension, perimenopause. I didn't realize that nearly 40 year old Agap who's done um, medicine and gone through, you know, Queen Mary's University and trained in England would still be translating the same things. So it's really key that I see women and I put them in there in my book. But not only do I see them, I hear them, but also I represent them as well. Because when that happens, you suddenly feel, oh, gosh, this information about cervical screening or this public health message about breast cancer uh, self-checking, this conversation around making sure that I equip myself for perimenopause and I'm not leaving the workplace because I'm impacted by my symptoms is a conversation that I'm part of. I remember very early on, I went into the mosque and as I started doing women's health, a lot of the women were complaining of arthralgia, head to toe pain. And to me, I couldn't make sense of that because they would never complain of hot flushes because their context of hot flushes is entirely different. A woman from Dubai said to me, stand in the Dubai heat, you'll know what a hot flush is. And then it occurred to me that actually they don't go to the doctor to complain about hot flushes, but they complain about physical pain. So I said to the women at the mosque, I think what you're describing is perimenopause. And they all laughed at me and said, no, 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 white women get menopause. Um, and And I was aghast. I was struck that there's a whole area of medicine 
a whole area of a natural biological transition that we go through that women from certain communities who don't have a word for the menopause or perimenopause actually feel excluded. And that is really awful because then we're going, why aren't these women in the workplace? Why aren't these women coming for examinations? Why is there no trust with the doctors? Why are they given antidepressants, you know, other than actually considering hormone replacement therapy? Why is there a higher risk of um, diabetes and cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis in ethnic minority communities? And it's precisely this. It starts with education. So that was really key that I had that in the book. And it's that lack of research, though, as well, isn't it, as well? I mean, generally in women's health overall, but also particularly in certain areas of communities and ethnicities. I know, that, you know, from my personal point of view, perimenopause, I've not had a hot flush yet, but I've got the kind of the joint pain on the muscle ache. And that was that's a classic South Asian, you know, um, symptoms so it's having that understanding and sharing it and i think um i was in london at the weekend and i, I live in edinburgh so edinburgh is you know not particularly ethnically diverse it's, it's really very not and I, I i was in london on a bus got on a bus and i was the palest brown person on the bus <laughs> it was different shades of you know that kind of and i just felt wow there was this kind of sense of wow this is just brilliant and i immediately thought of the work you know we were doing i knew we were going to be talking to you and going well this is the this is the community that's kind of missing from health and from women's health as well caroline it's part of the fact that where do we invest our research so there is twofold argument about research when it comes to marginalized communities one is that they're not even aware that these symptoms are significant enough to speak to the doctor about because the doctor's got cancer and diabetes and all these other things that they hear about, which are far worse to discuss, especially when it comes to stuff that you've always been told, well, that's normal, put up with it. And then secondly, where there is no um, investment made from researchers because there isn't a lot of money to be made from ethnic minority communities. You're going to go where actually you can make some money at the end of it. And then third Thirdly, we from ethnic minority communities don't trust the researchers so much because there is that breakdown of so much. uh, There's a brilliant book called Divided, um, but there's so much failures that have happened within ethnic minority communities that we just don't trust mainstream medicine. So you stick to your own. And I think that part of the reason why I did my book was because I wanted women to know no, you're very much part of this. We need to make sure that we have equity of healthcare. We're not even asking for equality anymore. We want equity because what we've done historically clump women together. Black women uh, and Asian women are BAME. I mean, we use those terms in medicine consistently. What is BAME? I don't even understand what BAME is. I can't be a voice for a black woman. I'm a South Asian woman, vice versa. Um, white women can't be a voice for black women because we are very nuanced. And so that intersectionality of understanding uh, our backgrounds, our heritages, our cultures, and then the word that we hate using these days, class, but it's still very much is is around, uh, are so important to understanding women's healthcare. Absolutely. And I think you, you touched on, you know, how we um, all experience menopausal symptoms or perimenopausal symptoms differently. Educating ourselves is really important, which is why your book is so important, because if we can get that message across that it's not all about hot flushes and night sweats, that maybe you might have top to toe pain or maybe you might have, you know, um, you know, tiredness or insomnia or even vaginal dryness, which is still such a taboo. I mean, I'm still, I, it's something I, 
it still surprises me that it's such a taboo because I talk about it every day and I talk about it openly every day. But I'm a GP and a medical specialist, so it feels natural to me. But yet I think the women coming in to my NHS practice and if I have an interpreter in that room, it's a very different dynamic. You don't you don't get offered that. And even when you ask it directly, you often don't get a direct answer. Is that something you've found in practice? So I don't use interpreters because I speak. So a lot of my patients are Punjabi and Urdu speaking. So that's why my social media content in those different languages as well. And what's interesting is, is that I really have struggled to find the words What's happened historically and through conversations when it comes to women's bodies is that they're siphoned off to other people. Our body isn't our own. We've hypersexualized breasts, vulvas, vaginas, hips, for goodness sakes, our neck. I mean, the amount of times I get, even now still, in fact, this morning I had a message on my Instagram going, sister, I can see your neck, that's haram, which is essentially translated as that's forbidden in Islam. So even me showing my neck on BBC Breakfast offends somebody. But I think that this is where we've got to be able to go, no, we've got to get ownership over bits of our, our body and our anatomy and have words. So in Punjabi, there is no word for vulva and vagina apart from a swear word. There is no word for menopause. In Punjabi, what we it's very loosely, it's called ban, it's called kapre khatamoge in Punjabi. And that's translated as you're off the rag. And in Urdu, the word is even worse. In Urdu, it's banji. Banji is um, loosely translated as barren. So essentially, women are going, but I'm perimenopausal. I'm not barren. I'm like, that's an awful word to use. And so if you look at other marginalized communities, like the deaf community, in British Sign Language, we don't have a word for menopause either. They use men and stop. Other communities, such as neurodiverse, if you look at Autism and ADHD, both of us know that's even more under research when it comes to perimenopausal symptoms and what those symptoms overlap with their normal or their neurodiversity and their interpretation of their symptoms. So when I look at ethnic minority women, particularly within my community, faith plays a huge part. There is this fatalistic argument, Allah will fix me if I pray hard enough. My mental health symptoms, well, people think I'm crazy. So actually, if I just um, be a good citizen and, and play my part, then I will be rewarded in heaven because death is something that actually as Muslim people and people of faith don't worry about because it's something that we know that is going to be inevitable. But actually, if we need to make sure we play our part. The significant thing is, is that within that, you lose um, the argument of even wanting to engage in research, bettering yourself, knowing that certain things are preventable, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, osteoporosis. So as a clinician, I feel that there's a whole section of society with that fatalistic argument that aren't able to be empowered to care because medicine has moved on and nowhere in any faith group so in islam particularly does it say that you you have to turn away from modern medicine and not accept modern medicine as a treatment and then finally the other thing is is that when it comes to conversations around women's bodies actually we've got to get the men involved from those communities as well um i did uh, a workshop on contraception and i was talking about coils and i was talking about it with my women and from my community and it was really because of trying to educate these women the importance of having gaps between children so there is unfortunately still this sort of we've got to have a male and a and a, and a spare and you know all if you have girls then keep trying until you have a boy uh, i won't go into too much about that but we have 
have loads of issues around that, but also the woman's health suffers if there's too many babies successionally. And when I did the contraceptive clinic, all of the women at the end of it said to me, but I'm going to go home and speak to my husband. And then I realized, actually, that was the worst thing I could have done in that clinic because the women already know about contraception. They're invested, they're on board, but they still feel that they need to ask the man of the house to make that decision. And conversely, I get the same with perimenopausal symptoms as well. When I speak to a Punjabi woman, she'll go, I'm not going to take HRT or antidepressants. I'm just going to go home and speak to my husband. And I think that we've got to be able to work past this fact that this is a gender conversation. These are not gender conversations. These are societal conversations. I did a workshop with Somalian women in Newham uh, a while back, and we worked out that the uptake of mammograms was really low. And the reason the uptake of mammograms was really low is because women aren't self-checking. Secondly, they don't understand the significance of it. And so, but we needed the men in the workshop to understand why you had to do breast examinations. But that's such a taboo subject in a very conservative Muslim Somalian community. So we reached out to the women in the community and said, what's the best way to have these conversations? And they said, don't show us pictures of breasts. Do not show us how to self-examine. And what we did was we made bread, dough balls, put a frozen pea in there and got men and women in the workshop to understand this is the reason, this is what dimpling looks like on the bread. This is what a frozen pea, a lump feels like, because it is actually essentially the man in that relationship who might pick up the lump. Mm. Women pick testicular lumps all the time. I know you, you will often find that. And so then the men realized, oh, I need to encourage my wife to go to that mammogram appointment and make sure that there's space and room made for her so that the children are looked after, the elderly in-laws and the parents are looked after so she has time to go for her mammogram and on a monthly basis remind her to do a breast exam and we've replicated that so it's not about the fact that it one size fits all you've got to look at the nuances and the intersectionality of that community and there are ways to get messages out there it's that connection and community you're talking about then again as well. I think it's really, really key. You know, you've gone into community. How can we solve this? How can we support the community? How can we get the message out there? These are life-saving things that, you know, families can do, but men can help with. And just talking about, you know, this kind of, I guess, acceptance of bodies, this understanding of maybe not needing to ask permission, but also engaging, engaging with the men in the community as well. You know, how how do you find it within the kind of younger communities? Are you finding the kind of younger women, in particular, perhaps teenagers, a bit, are able to engage with us a little bit more, are sort of asking more questions of their elders? Definitely, I think there are. And social media plays a huge part in that because there are people like me. You know, there's a hijab woman talking about vaginal dryness, and she's talking about endometriosis and PMDD. There's a conversation already, just because there's representation. Someone who looks like you, you suddenly feel, oh, that can happen to me. I can see it and I can be it. And that cuts through so much of the historical lived in generational shame that we have about our bodies. But also it allows 12 year olds and 13 year olds to go, actually, I don't need to put up with this. Where I'm learning a lot is from actually my millennials and my Gen Z generation on socials like TikTok, Instagram and also um, YouTube as well. Because my generation, so I'm nearly coming up to 40, I still get women who will go, 
I'm just going to lie on the couch, Dr. Arif, just do what you need to do and be as quick as, as you can about it. Because we've made this disconnect with our bodies that the doctor is going to examine me vaginally and she's probably going to need to do a rectal examination if it's depending on the consultation. So your brain just goes, I'm going to switch off from this. My body isn't my own. It's part of medicine and it's part of people wanting to examine me. How many times have we had pregnant women who had multiple pregnancy or IVF patients who've gone through horrific rounds of IVF and just said, just do what you need to do. And now I get 17, 18 year olds who will be like, but why are you doing this? Will it, will it be painful? What is this equipment? Are you going to use lubrication or something that's not going to be discomforting when you do a speculum examination? And I can't remember when I was ever going through speculum examinations, even as a doctor, ever asking the midwife when I was pregnant, um, are you, is this you know, is this going to be painful? And asking her questions. And I think that this is where we are moving now more so because social media has taken away the taboo, but that generational shame away from us. Conversely, I still get the older generation, so people my age, more reserved communities who will say, you know, sister, take that vaginal dryness conversation and have it behind closed doors. <laughs> uh, but the majority is, is that they want to take ownership of their bodies. And I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of the fact that I'm part of that. It's really interesting what you're talking about, that sort of cut, the cutting off, you know, physically um, just examine me. That's fine. Just get on with it. Because actually in Scotland, we've got a trauma informed approach being rolled out. It's slowly beginning to happen. And actually I've gone for a smear about six months ago. And I was I was I was almost taken aback because the nurse said, right, this is what I'm going to be doing. Would you like somebody else in the room? And and actually taught me, and I'm a trauma-informed teacher. So I was like, oh wow. <laughs> and I actually thought I thanked her for that. But I thought it was a really interesting approach. And that's something I bring into my work, as both of you do, you know, this idea of kind of engaging with these populations who are marginalized and saying, right, this is this is possibly what's going on for you. Can you take somebody with you, you know, when you see the nurse, when you see the doctor? So you've got that support. Because in that in that moment, you could feel very nervous, very anxious. You can literally just, like like, like you said, Nigat, just cut yourself off and just get on with it. But actually, there's an element of needing to be present and to be aware and, and to have the understanding, but also to be able to ask the questions. And in that situation, many people can't ask the questions when they're on their own. I think because women know the game, I get 13, 14 year olds who will go, I know that I'll get periods. So from the age of 12 or even nine, when they start their periods, they know that their gynecological bits are going to cause them pain. So you sort of detach yourself. I've actually learned through men because men have stuff not really that much done to them. And I used to sit on vasectomy clinics and um, I never, I can't remember ever having a conversation with a man who didn't ask about pain relief. If you need to take time off work <laughs> from having a vasectomy, what are the long-term complications? And um, asking, you know, things like really practical questions about how long is it going to take? Whereas I still do a coil clinic. I run a coil clinic every week um, and I, I can be doing up to eight coil coils in one clinic. And I'll get women who will go, how long is this going to be? Because I've got to get onto the bus because I've got to get back to work in my lunch hour. I'm doing this in my lunch hour. And I'm always like, what? Like, this is an actual procedure I'm doing to you. And it is that essentially our bodies are never, we don't think of them as ours at all, but yet we inhabit it and we move on. And men are much more savvy. Listen to a man who has a consultation for, say, prostate cancer and the investigations and the aftercare. I guarantee it'll be so much different than a woman who's got breast cancer because we we sort of 
we make them terrified of their own hormone estrogen we make them terrified of the fact that they just need to get this cancer and then that's it and you go into that survival mode whereas men we treat them for prostate cancer we deal with it and then once they're absolutely clear five years later what do we do after zolodex injections is give them testosterone and viagra thing <laughs> you know it's it's such a different conversation uh, how we treat it and I've learned through men that they don't have a disconnect with their bodies no and it's absolutely going from that going back to what you were saying about women coming in and giving themselves time to have these examinations and, and tests done you know the number of women that I, I see and have do a smear test on and they've got the whole family in the room you know everyone yeah. comes to the appointment because they can't get childcare. that would never happen from was- having a prostate examination they wouldn't bring their children you know no. I've never seen. I'm sorry to interrupt you there. I'm I'm laughing because I needed a coil insert because I have a copper coil, and um, I decided that you know no more babies, ten years, and my periods are pro- you know relatively problematic. And I took my two and a half month old, breastfed him, lay on the couch, got my friend Hannah. Well, she's not my friend, but she's my colleague. But she runs a coil clinic in the sexual health centre. She popped a coil in me. And then I was up, gave my son uh, sort of whatever he needed. And then I was driving home and I was like, I I just could not arrange childcare. And that is essentially where we are um, in the situation and the imbalance and and the unfairness of the whole system. It is that disconnect, isn't it, in in terms of men's bodies and female bodies? Like you said, you know, why are we making women fearful of their own hormones? Why are we making women fearful of estrogen when, when men can... And I know this has been discussed time and time again, so I don't want to sound like a broken record, but when men can go and buy Viagra over the counter, and I know I know there is Gina, Gina, however you want to talk about it, over the counter vaginal estrogen, but actually what we need is the access for women. And it's not just the women that see their GP and can have easy access. It's for the women that don't have that easy access or perhaps build up the courage to go and talk about something that for them is embarrassing. And, you know, let's face it, we talk about it all day, so we're used to it. So, But but that woman in front of you may be embarrassed. But if you're dismissing that person, they're likely not to come back and see you. And then you've lost this valuable doctor-patient relationship, that valuable treatment potentially. And I just wonder how we've got so far down the road of alienating women against their hormones and how perhaps we might bring them back and how we might bring certain groups back so that we can have those discussions really meaningfully. I don't know what you think about that. I'm always reminded of a consultation and actually the first journey into doing women's health because I was going to be a gastroenterologist. Nowhere on my radar was the fact that I was going to be a GP with a specialist interest in women's health. And I sat on a consultation. I had a rotation in gynae as an F2, actually, just a small stint. And the consultant gynecologist, male, had a female patient in front of him who'd had a history of breast cancer, but it was over 20 years ago. It was it was caught very, very early. It was introductory, so no, no spread, nothing. But she had built up the courage in this consultation to speak to the gynecologist. Uh, there was multiple other things, but to speak to the gynecologist and said to him, I'm getting recurrent urinary tract infections and I don't understand it. The urologists don't get it. And also 
sex is becoming really painful, that whenever we have sex, I'm now splitting at the bottom of my vagina and it's really, really sore and it's really impacting my relationship. And I could see that she built up this courage to talk to this doctor, having a very junior female, you know, doctor in the room as well. And the consultant actually said to her, well, because of your breast cancer, not much we can do, but have two glasses of wine and line back. Mm. And horror her face she looked at me to go oh my god has this actually happened and I shrunk in the chair because I just couldn't believe but the hierarchy in the room was I didn't have enough knowledge to back this up because I didn't know because I was just thinking she's had breast cancer and she survived amazing that's brilliant and now you know, older Nagat knows that actually we could, we should, and we definitely must have talked to her about estrogen. She had vaginal atrophy. That's your, that was essentially what she was saying. And uh, the response is so dismissive. And I essentially failed her in that consultation as a woman to woman, but also as a doctor. And that sticks with me because we've got to get away from the fact that our bodies are trying to kill us. Everybody is telling you, you know, it's estrogen derivative breast cancer. It's east. And yes, that's absolutely correct. But you've got to look at the fact that we don't talk about sort of HPV in our cervix, which can cause cell changes as something that's killing us either. We can go and have smears and we have tests. Exactly the same with breast cancer. You should be doing self-checking and taking the taboo and the stigma away from self-checking your breasts. And like later on going for mammograms. And then there are different estrogens. There are systemic estrogens and an estrogen that work just in the localized area in your vulva and your vagina. And the uptake in the bloodstream is minuscule. Actually, time and time again, the data has always shown that it has no impact on reoccurrence of breast cancer or if you've got any risks to even increase your risk of breast cancer. So we've again come back to that conversation that we just treat women as breasts this is your breast i'm going to treat this and that's it i don't care about the rest of you but your vulva and your vagina your recurrent urinary tract infections your episiotomy scar splitting god forbid you're a victim or you know survivor of of rape or traumatic births or you know the fact that you have a prolapse on top of that and you've got stress and urge incontinence you know with denying you treatment to replace back that hormone in that area that's unforgivable, surely. And we've got to be able to step away from that as doctors and say, no, I have to take a holistic approach. And and that is essentially, I think, where we are going now, because more women are outliving the diagnosis of cancer. And cancer now should be, I believe, a chronic disease, especially breast cancer, because survival rate is so brilliant. And um, But it, it takes time and it, and it takes educating healthcare professionals because the fear of God has been put into us about hormones. I was that doctor about sort of 10 years ago that was actively taking HRT prescriptions out of my patient's hand because every single time I tried to prescribe it on EMIS, it was like screenshot of this red, you know, system's going to melt down. What you're giving this woman is going to cause breast cancer. And I still get the same with topical vaginal estrogen. And if you're an underconfident doctor who doesn't understand this or doesn't realize, then of course you're not going to prescribe it because you literally think that you're letting someone walk off with a prescription that is essentially a death sentence for them. And as GPs, we're generalists. We're not meant to be specialists. So not all of us have an interest in women's health, but it's making the, the importance of 
uh, our vulval, vaginal, pelvic health a fundamental aspect of our training. And that's where we have to be heading. Couldn't agree more. I think going back to what you're saying, it's not just you that 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 wrestled those H- HRT prescriptions off women. I think we've all been there and done that, you know, and, and gone right. And there's no way you can take this anymore. And it, it, it all it sits really badly with us, doesn't it? Now, when we think about what we were basing that data on and we know about the data being flawed, but there is this general kind of, there's an education need, isn't there? Not only for, for health professionals themselves, but also for the general public and how we can sort of empower women. I know there's a lot of work around education going on with the brilliant Joyce Harper as well. You know, the the education programs that, that are happening, your book, you know, even just having time to read and know how to examine your breasts and what to expect when you have a period, you know, that all that knowledge is, is out there. But I just wondered, you know, in terms of, in terms of getting that patient through the door and in, in terms of thinking about how we can approach communities, is there anything that we as GPs could be doing more? What could we do? Have you got any sort of top tips for us? Well, my top tip is every GP or health educator, I think, should be on social media because there's so much information, you know, uh, that I'm constantly battling. Even I can't keep up with the level of misinformation that's out there um, that I just try now for my own sanity. And because I'm a practicing clinician, put out bite-sized information and it's a skill to be able to teach something in 15 or 30 seconds which is the algorithm so battling with that the next thing I would love for all doctors to do is when they teach something to a woman in the surgery is say to her please don't keep this to yourself go and share this with your mates the best consultations are where I have lots of laughs and jokes with my patients and this is the joy of doing women's health and, and menopause care I fundamentally know that if I tell a woman about say vaginal oestrogen and this will make sex comfortable no way is she going to keep that information to herself she'll pop in talk to her community and go do you know what Dr Nagata said (laughs) and I I love that and then finally I think that what we've got to do as doctors is get out into our communities and I know that it's really hard because I struggle with that I reached out to a lot of um, groups uh, locally who do grassroots work And uh, fundamentally, one of the first women I approached who runs this cancer um, workshops with South Asian women said to me, oh, it's nice to have doctors out of their ivory towers. And I think over time, through no fault of our own, the system has been set up where your local GP isn't the family GP anymore. He's not the person you see at the fate or at the church service or, you know, at the Easter sales. And so they are very much these remote individuals. And I feel that a lot as well, because I, like my family GP, I would often see him at Christmas fairs and and that just doesn't happen anymore. And I think that we've got to be able to, especially the community that you're serving is learn about them so it's a partnership i'm not going to come in as a rescuer and have this rescue mentality and go right i'm going to teach all my south asian women how to do breast examination and understand all the symptoms of perimenopause because they're doing it themselves they've built infrastructure within their communities what we've got to do is learn from them and what i did in september 20th was launch the health collective uh, in partnership with well-being of women and this is really to support the work for the women's health strategy that Dame Leslie Regan, Professor Dame Leslie Regan, 
is the ambassador for. And what we did is that mapped out all the grassroots organisations through the UK and the work that they're already doing. So, for example, the Somalian women that I talked about earlier about breast examinations and Joe Bulls. Well, that's easily replicable for other Somalian women across the UK. So instead of working in silos, and then when research companies approach me and go, Dr Nagat, how do we access you know, women from your community? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Well, actually, we've got them mapped out and it's something that's taking a lot of work. It's painstaking work. It's gaining trust from them. I understand that not everybody has um, digital access. So we're trying to tackle digital poverty, food poverty, uh, domestic violence groups as well. But what I found is, is that these communities have built trust and links. So women are literally strapping children to their back, looking after uh, other women's kids so she can go and get her coil and her smear or her mammogram sorted. And that's what we need to incorporate in the clinical pathways when we start writing them for the women's health strategy. Amazing. It's just a joy to talk to you. And we could we could carry on talking to you for hours, in fact, all day. But I know you've got to you've got a dash and um you've probably got a very busy day ahead of yourself. But I'm so grateful to have spoken to you today. And I know Carolyn is too. Thank you so much for taking the time just to just to chat to us this morning. And Dr. Nigat's book is available now, The Knowledge, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So thank you so much. Oh, it's been a joy. Thank you so much, Claire and Caroline, and to your lovely listeners who's tuned in to this podcast. And if I just have one small nugget of request, one is, is that please can you reach out to me or Claire or Caroline through this podcast. If you run a, a, an organization, grassroots organization that focuses on women's health, that could be menstruation, it could be even your fertility years, so pregnancy care, and then menopause and beyond, please reach out to myself. I'm all over socials, so I know that Claire will tag me in the podcast because we are continuously mapping. It's a live document that's running currently. And this will inform us, but also inform the Department of Health that there are these groups that are already doing the work. And then later on, hopefully, we can get funding to support the ongoing work that you're doing. And then before I end, just finally, this is really a plea, more so not for my book, but more so for all of us is within us to do care. And I'm always reminded of the words of Colleen Hoover, who's a writer and a poet, and she talks about pain and how we disconnect from our bodies and how we live with our symptoms forever. And she wanted to make a change. And she goes that um, my grandmother lived through pain. My mother lived through pain. I'm living through pain. And I'll be damned if my daughter does the same. And I think that that's a call to arms for everybody on this podcast. You know, let that be the motto. We'll be damned if the next generation has to have these similar conversations that you heard on the podcast. Thank you so much, Nagat. <laughs> You're welcome. It's so lovely to speak to you guys. <laughs>